and welcome to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Sarah Brown and I'm joined by my friend at Garden Organic, Chris Collins. Every month we bring you gardening tips and practical advice the organic way. So, what have we got this month? Well, we've got Chris getting enthusiastic about pea shoots. What's amazing about pea shoots is you can multi-crop them. So you, once they're up about 20 centimetres, you can prune them off with the scissors, put them in your sarnia or in your salad, and they reshoot three or four times before they expire. And our special guest, tree expert, Tony Kirkham. And you know what? Everyone thinks you can plant a tree. Everyone thinks you can prune. But actually, there's an art and a science to it. And of course, we end with a dip in the monthly post bag when we discuss what's safe to put on the compost heap, how to stop your soil getting waterlogged, and a mystery pest in a listener's orange tree. But first, here's a quick word about our brilliant sponsors, the Organic Catalogue. If you're stuck for Christmas present ideas, then have a browse. You may find something to treat a gardening companion, or even spoil yourself. So go online at organiccatalogue.com. And if you're a member of Garden Organic, you'll get 10% off. So just search for organiccatalogue.com. So now I'm off to the virtual potting shed to join Chris. As before, we've had to record remotely, so please forgive our funny blips and the odd stutter. It just isn't the same, is it? Just sitting together with a cuppa. Hey, Chris, it's really nice to speak again. How are you? I'm good, Sarah. How are you? I'm very well. And actually, I think we have reason to celebrate because we've been shortlisted again as the gardening podcast of the year. That's not bad, is it? I think that's superb. I'm chuffed. I'm really chuffed for us all. I'm chuffed for you. I'm chuffed for Garden Organic. Yeah, and all our lovely listeners. Yes. On top of that, I did note that you've been listed as one of the top 50 influencers in the (laughs) horticultural world. I am so impressed, Chris. (laughs) Well, if um, like it's a podcast and you'd see me blushing <laughs> no it's nice and I've been in the I've been in the trade a long long time so it's always nice to get a bit of acknowledgement isn't it it is and it's a privilege to work with you I have to say but and before we get too much backslapping and <laughs> let's get down to work let's get our heads out the door after this uh... um Okay, so what am I doing in the garden this month? Well, the instinct is to tidy up, isn't it? Because everything is a little bit dead and dying. But I think I have to fight that instinct. To be honest, I think it's a mistake to be too tidy in the garden because there's so many habitats and shelters there for the wildlife to hibernate in over winter. Yeah, it's so right. You've got to remember that. it's you know The garden is a room, but it's a living room. It's a real live room with lots of stuff going on in it. So don't treat it as your indoor living room and try and hoover it i think that you know uh, some of the things i like to do or certain my allotment i like to put habitat piles in so any i'll maybe prune out any dead wood on the on the fruit trees or whatever keep that wood retain it and uh, as long as it's healthy and put it in a pile so you can get your beetles and your spiders and stuff in things like herbaceous plants as well it's so tempting to cut them back but they're that lovely brown straw colored aren't they and if you're lucky mm. enough to get a decent frost that is a perfect sight on a winter's day, frosted herbaceous. And that also means that that dead material, that dead foliage, is protecting the root ball of your herbaceous plants from any damage. Mm, but also think how the insects love those hollow stems that they can crawl into, ladybirds and, and such like, and piles of leaves for hedgehogs, if you're lucky enough to have a hedgehog in your garden. I've noticed that in the corner of my potting shed, there's a massive amount of spider webs ah. and spider nests rather rather than webs. And that's good that, you know, there's little eggs in there. There's baby spiders will hatch out in the spring and they'll be dealing with an awful lot of pests in the shed and in the greenhouse. So, yeah, I think you're quite right. You share your plot. The organic gardener shares their plot with the wildlife. So make it good for them in the winter. Help them to survive these cold, wet winter months. 
Yeah, take care of your friends. That's a good way to look at it, <laughs> you know, because they will be helping you out in that garden space when the grind season kicks off again. But if you really are keen to get out and really are keen to be doing things, there's two jobs I'd recommend, two tidying jobs. One, I think it's a good idea to clean out your greenhouse and the pots in it. Wash down the glass. That'll let in the most amount of the winter light to whatever might still be in the greenhouse growing and brush out your pots. Wash them even. That'll prevent diseases and pests like red spider mite overwintering. Um, it'll also make sure that you check under those pots for any snails that might be lurking there. And then one other job I'll be doing is I'll be weeding and clearing the soil around my fruit trees and bushes because that allows the birds to come down and peck at the overwintering pests. And you'll also be removing any competition for that fruit bush, competition for their roots from the grass. So those are good jobs which will they're kind of domestic and satisfying, but also will get you out and about. Yes, certainly. I mean, personally, I like, you know, how much I like winter and its own its own vibe, isn't it? Those fresh winter days. And I like to potter around. The good thing about winter is you're not you're not rushing, really, are you? You've got time on your hands. And that sort of housekeeping you've described, I really enjoy doing. My polytunnel gets good clean. I like to look at my tool, wash and oil all my tools. I'm very, very fussy about making sure my tool equipment lasts, you know, my spades and my forks mm. and things like that. Oh, that's my little polytunnel. I'll give that a good old clean, make sure that's all in order. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's just a nice time, you know, fresh winter's morning, you can't beat it. I think it's quite a reflective time this month as well, you know, Chris. I pulled up my beans, my runner beans, and initially I was I was sad. I thought, oh, another growing year has ended. And then I began to get more philosophical and reflective about it. And I remembered back in May when I planted them and then the late <laughs> frost that nearly killed them. And then all that lockdown period and I began to think, yeah, it's all a cycle of life, you know, and it's not going to be that long before I'm sowing those beans again. And who knows what next year will bring. But there is that sense of past, but also a very, very strong sense of future, which growing helps Certainly. you to hang on to. I think that's maybe emphasised more this year as we've been in, in no, not been able to move around so much and we've been at home a lot more. I think that's kind of taken on, it's maybe emphasised it a little bit. Every uh, season stands out in some way and you learn a little bit more, you get a little bit wiser. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Now we are going into winter and though it may still feel autumnal down in the south, I'm very conscious of our listeners who are further north. And I bet by now there's some pretty heavy frosts going on. Yes, definitely. Well, I've got a friend who lives, I've got a lot of Scottish friends, obviously, because I used to live and work up there and study up there. And uh, I've got a friend in Melrose and he's they're putting up with quite heavy frosts and have been for a few weeks now. So you need to think about what plants you've got and how to protect them, don't you, Sarah? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And I think wherever you are in the country, you need to watch that weather forecast like a hawk because frost can creep up on you un unawares. Um, I think there are certain things you can certainly do to prevent the worst of the frost damage. Just before we do that, let's talk about frost a bit. Why does frost kill a plant? Well, what happens is every plant has got water inside it, inside the cells, and this is carried up through the plant cells. Now, what happens is that water freezes when the temperature drops. That will break the cell walls, which means they can no longer carry the plant's nutrient juices, the sap, the water or whatever. And that means the plant's going to die. 
So not only does a frost kill the plant, but quite often a prolonged frost will also freeze the ground so that the plant can't take up water. The ground is too hard and too ice bound. So those are the dangers. So what you've got to do is protect the ground sometimes and certainly protect the plants. Now, you can do something as simple as put a cardboard box or a pot over a particularly precious plant. Chris, you've got other tips as well, haven't you? Yeah, you can. If you've got if you're a lover of tree ferns or any of these big sort of in recent years, haven't we become a bit more exotic in our approach to gardening, obviously influenced by the fact that climate's changing slightly, but they will still be vulnerable. So maybe some hessian, wrap up some hessian around it, make sure you protect any trunks or any crowns. That's quite important. And what you described there about how frost works, you get a thing called physiological droughts, basically. That's what it is, where the ground freezes and the plant can't take up the water. And that isn't apparent usually until the spring comes. So say if you've got a big rhododendron that you love, and it looks fine all through the winter. It's frosted on the ground and it looks fine. Because what's happened is as soon as the spring comes and it comes out of dormancy, it tries to operate and, and start photosynthesizing. And then you get the damage. It start, the whole plant starts to flag. So if you are in a really cold place, like the, up north of Scotland or whatever, it may pay. It breaks the rules a little bit, but it may pay to put down a nice thick mulch. That could be an artificial one, maybe a, a mypex or something, or hessian, or it could be an organic mulch. But just protect those surface roots from that permafrost. I think that's a really good tip. And I've used leaves and straw, in fact, to protect, for instance, dahlias. I no longer dig up my dahlias because I don't get that bad a frost anymore. And I've been able to protect them by putting this layer, this mulch of dried leaves and bracken over the top of them. But one word of warning, I have to say, sometimes with some plants, it's the damp, not the right. frost that kills them. And I'm thinking particularly of those Mediterranean herbs. Yeah, I think that, that for, for, for us down south, it's going to be moisture is more likely to kill our plants over the winter. Um, plants not draining. Of course, the, re, the way to get your soil draining properly and to keep it healthy is to keep applying that compost in the spring. Make sure it's getting into that and working that soil and making sure things drain properly. Most plants don't like wet feet. They like to be in free draining soil. So always bear that in mind. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned put down compost in the spring. Don't put it down now. There's absolutely no point putting it in down in the tail end of the year. We talked about leaf mould in last month's podcast, and it's worth catching up on that, how to make leaf mould, because we're now surrounded by the fallen leaves. And that's the sort of mulch which will work perfectly on your soil through the winter. It's low nutrition, but it just protects the soil against those extremes of rain and frost. And, and it, as it breaks down, it'll help with that soil structure, that all-important soil structure structure as well and let's face it there's no short supply of leaves falling off the trees at the moment i'm looking <laughs> out my window at the yellow of the, of the autumn and uh, as it just comes to its tail end there are leaves everywhere remember it's a free lunch that's what leaf mold is it's a free lunch that's so true and last thing chris i'm going to mention because if you're back in lockdown and i know some parts of the country are and also you're missing getting out because the weather's so dire why not try sowing indoors I've been using old margarine tubs, yogurt pots or mushroom trays. You know, when you buy the mushrooms yes. from, from the greengrocers and I use them as pots. Make sure they've got holes in the bottom so you've got drainage. Get some peat free seed sowing compost or if you want to use your own soil or your own homemade sowing compost 
and try sowing some maybe some lettuces, some winter salad leaves like mustard and cress. I've got winter purslane, for instance, like absolutely delicious. They'll germinate and grow really quite quickly indoors and they will keep you in your nice green vitamin C throughout the winter months. They're perfect. Like straight off your windowsill into your sandwich. I'm big on the pea shoots. It was actually garden organic. That turned me on to this. And go to the supermarket for 80 pence, you'll get a box of dried peas, one of the best 80 peas you'll ever spend in your life. Literally just get an old mushroom pallet, some decent peat free compost, a bit of drainage. And look, what's amazing about pea shoots is you can multi crop them. So you, once they're up about 20 centimeters, you can prune them off with the scissors, put them in your sarnia or in your salad, and they reshoot three or four times before they expire. And really, I mean, if you go to the supermarket, you can buy pea shoots. They're quid 50 for a vacuum packed bag. Listen, AEP keep you in pea shoots all winter, no problem. Fantastic. I'll tell you a little thing that I've been doing, Chris. I've been troubled by moles. And you know, you see that line of, of mole hills going across. Yes. Mm. Luckily, it's not my lawn, but it's in the field next door. But that is very, very nice soil. Oh, it's so perfect, isn't it? I scoop it up and, and I keep a bag of it ready for seed sowing and whatever. But I'll tell you a tip that I have learnt, and it sounds bonkers, but trust me, it works. I bake that soil. I put it in an oven, in an oven tray, and I bake it for about 20 minutes at quite a high temperature. That is actually sterilizing the soil because what I found before, if I didn't do that, was that I got a lot of grass and weed seeds coming up, germinating at the same time as my salad seeds. So by doing a sort of bit of domestic sterilizing, I now have a soil alone, which is absolutely fine to sow into. And the only things that are going to germinate are the seeds that I want to germinate, that I've sown. That's a great tip, Sarah. I like that a lot. OK, well, I hope you have a great month, Chris, on your allotment and on your balcony. Yep. And we'll speak again soon. Okay, cheers, Sarah. So now let's turn to our special guest this month. Tony Kirkham is Head of Arboriculture at Kew Gardens. He is, quite simply, one of the world's great experts on trees. Sit back and enjoy as he and Chris discuss how to plant trees, what's wrong with tree planting targets, and why somewhere like Kew is so important. Right, it's a big treat for me today. I'm uh, back on my own stomping ground, I suppose, up at the Royal Botanical Gardens Kew, one of my favourite if not favourite gardens, and I'm here with my old gaffer, Mr. Tony Kirkham. Yeah, how are you doing, Chris. Tony? I'm, I'm really good, Chris. It's always good to see you. Yeah. Uh, always good to catch up, and uh, absolute pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, it is. You're looking very well, I must say. Likewise. I mean, so it's quite a strange time for you then, isn't it, really? Because you've had to deal with COVID. It's probably one of the most strangest years I've ever worked in. 42 years. Last week, I started at Kew. 42 years ago. Wow. And, and of all those 42 years, this has been the most bizarre, with COVID, with lockdown, with the weather. Uh, I think it's probably one of the most challenging times for any any gardener, any horticulturalist grow, growing plants, uh, and then, as you say, coupled with uh, COVID lockdown. With the pandemic as well. The pandemic. It's just been really, really weird. And uh, But, you know, Chris, I don't have to tell you, we are very flexible people <laughs> in what we do and resourceful, and yeah. we always... We always get through and every year is different and every year is a challenge and everything we do is a challenge, uh, especially in the 21st century. So we will get through. Yeah, you're very adaptable. Kind of brings me to my next question. I'm Sarah Brown, who, who is the brains behind this podcast, uh, gave me a stat. She says you're in charge of 14,000 trees. So that's, that's so, right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah. a lot of trees. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I mean, obviously those will stem back quite a long way, planted over a yeah. lot, lot of time. But you'd have yeah. been personally involved in quite a lot of them. When people ask me, what is an arboretum? 
you know, what is Q? What, why have all these trees? And I just, I, I basically compare it to a living reference library. So you can come and look, you can come and research, you can get information, but you can't take it away with you. So you've got to come to Q to do that, to do that research, yeah. like you'd go to a reference library. Yes, yeah, so I always refer to Botanic Gardens as living library with plants. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, you've mentioned the 42 years, of course, you, that's a vast experience, isn't it? So you kind of learn to read things and know what's going on. And yeah. you can look at plants and tell, tell what's happening. Absolutely. And, and in that 42 years, you know, we talk about climate change and people say to me, is it really happening? You know, but over a long period well i don't think 42 years is a long period in in growing trees because they've been around for millennia but in that 42 years i've seen an incredible change in in weather patterns which has made us change our horticultural practices and uh you know it, it gets more and more challenging for trees that's a that's a really interesting point so it's the, it's the seasons you've seen change you think it has and i i call it seasonal change rather than climate change right. i think we we used to get you know, when we were nippers, we used to get four distinct seasons. Mm. Autumn started and then ran, and we had autumn colour, horse chestnut fruits for conkers, etc. And then autumn finished to a day, winter started, hard frosts, snow, and that would have been in like November, the end of November. Yeah. You know, now that doesn't really start until end of December, January. Mm. If at all, really, in it, London. If it, yeah, we're yeah. just not getting that. Yeah. And, and then winter, so autumn and winter merge into one, and then spring starts, and you think it started and it hasn't, then it has, then it hasn't, and before you know it, you're in summer. And so I, I reckon we're into two seasons now rather than four, uh, which is very challenging for, for gardeners, for horticulturalists, and, and it confuses everything. So the other day I was out in the Arboretum and there's a cornus, cornus cusa, Chinensis flowering, you normally flowers in May, full flower. Wow. Not a second flush, it's in full flower. It must be so mixed up and confused. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the first day of autumn, the official first day of autumn, I was in shorts on where a lot of my limbs yeah. fell like, It was like 26 degrees. And I, I wasn't complaining, but it's obviously not good, is it? No, it's and then, not. What is your sort of typical day, I suppose, is quite a good question. And, and the beauty of my job uh, is that there isn't a typical, there's never two days alike. Um, but you're right, I've got 14,000 trees, that's just a part of my job. Uh, of that, about 2,500 different species from all around the world. I spent uh, 25 years of my career at Kew plant collecting, so going out to Japan, China, Taiwan, Russia, uh, North America, Chile, looking for plants to bring back and, uh, and plant at Kew. And the, the initial catalyst of that was the storm in 1987, which mm. we've all forgotten about, you know. Yeah, it seems like a long time ago. 33 years ago, you know. <laughs> and uh, so rebuilding, that, that a big part of my job was rebuilding the Arboretum. But, you know, I have about 60 staff, students, apprentices. I have £1.3 million worth of machinery, horticultural machinery and equipment that I'm responsible for. Green waste recycling in the yard, so... You know, making compost, supplying compost, cutting grass, you know, a massive, massive You've job. Got, kind of got the um, basic, the, the, the immunity horticulture, making sure things look good for the visitors. Absolutely, yeah. The plants take yeah. care of But on top of that, you've got your travelling. So what, if yeah. you go travelling, is it or seed collecting? Is that mainly what you're it's doing? Mainly uh, seed collecting. So so we know what we want, you know, and we, we work very closely with host countries and uh, and we mount expeditions uh, and we have a list of what we'd like to collect. So you're working with governments and NGOs in these Abs places. That's yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. And that's the that's the only way. And networking and sharing. Right. Yeah. That's that was amazing. That was about 
gardeners in it that we are we have an amazing ability to share information and that's obviously very important and i suppose you need a massive really quite deep plant knowledge tree knowledge to be able to do that don't you 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 need to know what you're looking for yeah. you need to be able to identify it when you go to the those countries uh and you need to know how to grow it and that's what i i like to think that over the 42 years at kew and and before that i was in forestry yeah. uh, and arboriculture and and that's knowledge that you that you build up over those years but you're so right that as gardeners we we're very good at sharing yeah and uh, and that's why we have the best gardens in the world because if if you invite me to, over for dinner uh, next weekend I'm not going to come and bring a bottle of wine I might do yeah uh, but I, I wouldn't insult you with a bo- you know a cheap yeah. bottle of wine but I'll I'll probably bring you a plant yeah yeah for your <laughs> and likewise you do yeah. the same and, and that's and a really nice thing isn't it, it that is. is I think that's very special yeah. you kind of get it in all walks get it with trees you get it on the allotment people give you food and exactly you kind of yeah. like and plants and that kind yeah. of the whole adage isn't it you've got to keep a plant give it away then you yeah. can go and get it later yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, that's right and you know from the, we learned so much from the storm in 1986 never have all your eggs in one basket and if you can spread your collections around that's security so you know if if we ever do have another storm like that then since that storm we've distributed trees from our nursery to many other gardens and collections uh, and we know where they are and should we ever lose anything here we can always go and 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 that's also is that genetic as well you look at dna sourcing as well i remember when i worked here we did um in, in Charlotte's Cottage, we were re- planting oak trees. They were all DNA genetically right. sourced from local yep. local oak trees. Is that yep. important to you? It is, and I and I think that uh, we you know we call that provenance matching. Mm. And I and I think that over the next decade, two decades, in order to build up a resilient landscape now, a treescape, which is what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to look at climate. We're going to have to look at pests and diseases, and uh, and provenance will play. A more a more important role than it's ever played before. So it's almost like heritage seeds. You're looking for something that's localized that will have resilience to that immediate environment. Especially as we lose natural sources, obviously the deforestation. I mean, it's quite interesting mm. at the moment. We we talk about different things, but quite a big chunk of the world forest world's forests are on fire at the moment, that's aren't they? Right. Which is yeah. quite you know that doesn't yeah. necessarily get the headlines, does it? No, and, and you know we talk about tropical rainforests disappearing fast, but look at the temperate rainforests. Siberia, that's Siberia yeah, yeah, yeah. is on fire. California's mm. on fire. Oregon's on fire. Australia's on fire. You know what are we losing? We need to be planting more trees correctly yeah uh, I've, I've been up in the north a bit this year with my family and i remember going up onto the moors taking my sisters to show them where the roots were because they'd moved and you know uh, so i was showing in this area and, and it was an area of white grass on the edge of moorland and all you could see were acres and acres and acres of tree shelters mm. now someone has hit a lot of targets tree planting yeah most of the tree shelters were on upside down and i didn't see one tree coming out the top of the tree shelters right those trees have been in there for about five years okay you know so that means that's aftercare maybe wrong choice uh, wrong choice of trees right no weed control deer management yeah yeah. you know all these things so the target needs to be changed from tree planting to tree establishment right so so the numbers that are actually surviving is what we should be looking at and if we're saying we need we're going to plant a million trees a year or establish a million trees a year then we're not planting a million. We might have to plant five million yeah. to meet that target of right. one million five yeah. years down the line. Obviously, there's this will there, but is it being done correctly, do you think? At present, I, I get very frustrated. A lot of tree failure is aftercare, lack of. And, you know, I always compare trees to people. And, and we start in the, you know, we as people, we start in the nursery. 
we go through kindergarten, nursery, primary school, junior school, secondary school, college, university. Trees are exactly the same. Mm. So those early years are so formative, aren't they? With, so with, yeah, yeah. And if you don't get that right, it's funny. I was walking down through Palmer Green the other day, and there were seven big oaks. You'd have cried, and they. I put. I watched them go in at, um, last autumn. They've just not. They've got the kangaroo bangs on. I think they yeah, call them and all yeah. that. It's all gone. You yeah. just think, what? And they're big, heavy standards. They're not cheap. A lot of money. And, and yeah, you think yeah. how old, how long they've been in a nursery, and in, in, in one year they go. And you know what? Everyone thinks it can plant a tree. Everyone thinks it mm. can prune. But actually, there's an art and a science to it. And that gets neglected because anyone can pick a spade up, dig a hole and stick a tree in. But actually, if you start to learn the, you know, the scientific principles behind tree planting... It, it's it's easy, but you've got to apply. You've got, to know, you've got to know that. What would you say to them? Would you be your top tips for putting in a tree? Top tips for putting a tree in. First of all, good nursery stock. So we should be buying UK grown, if possible, uh, UK source, UK grown. The key thing is the planting hole, and I, we used to call them pits, and we called it a pit because it was deep and it was big and engineered. In actual fact, now all the latest science is um, wider shallower and the most critical part of the operation is planting depth most trees are planted too deep only an inch two inches too deep will kill a tree right. and it's a long slow death no organic matter in the planting pit you want the roots to penetrate the surrounding soil it, it, is what you're saying yeah. that tree should be really healthy and at its most vigorous when you plant it and if you put it in poor soil it's got to go and look for water it's got to go and look for nutrients and that's when it can do it if if you put a tree in a planting pit and you remember i said Trees are like people. Mm. We, they're la- they can be lazy like us. And if, if I give you a nice steak and chips every night <laughs> yeah. and you don't have to go and cook it and you don't have to go to the shop and buy it, you're just going to sit there and take yeah. it all in. A bit like being a spoiled kid in a way. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then all of a sudden I cut that off. I say, OK, I'm not going to give you... Where's my steak and chips? By then, you, you're too... You know, you, you've lost your muscle, you've lost your energy... Um, and you don't, in, and it's too late to go looking. Mm. So it starts as you mean to go on. And also by putting compost in planting pits creates a sump and, a, and it goes mushy, no fibre there. So I'm a, an advocate of putting the organic matter on as a mulch at the end and the tree will take it down yeah. as it needs it. So it'll whack down its tap root, get it strong, then it'll put out its fibrous put out its, yeah, yeah. Yeah, its main thing will be anchor. So I'm, I'm anti-staking, yeah. unless you really have to. It'll, it'll then anchor itself, it'll go and look for water, and then it'll go look for nutrients, in the order of those three. Yeah. And get it off to a good start, and it'll do all that on its own. And get it through that first season, you think, for larger trees. If you get it through the first season, that's got more of a chance, do you think? Definitely. That... And, and, you know, talking about climate change or seasonal change, we're planting in autumn now, and people are looking, you know, your tree's still in full leaf. You know, surely you wait till spring. Well... The soil's warm. Yeah. It's dry, but we can get water on. The trees, the, the top will stop growing, but the roots will will continue to grow. And they'll grow right through till Christmas now because the soil will be warm mm. enough. So that tree, come spring, when the drought starts, it's part-rooted. Yeah. It's on its way. So it's got a stronger start in the, in the spring. When it starts to yep. fight synthesize, etc. Yep. again, it yep. means the roots are down. The roots don't stop. They don't yep. go dormant. The That's roots. right. Yeah. Talking the technical stuff though, I, mean, I see terrible pruning wherever I go. Yep. It's really bad yep. at the moment. I've never known it. I mean, yep. this is in private garden. Do you yep. still compartmentalise? Do you still use COVID? Or, yep. Do you want I'm, to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I, I'm not saying I'm the expert on pruning, but I've written two pruning books. Yeah. I play around with pruning te- techniques here. Uh, I play, I've got a, a, a massive library of, of trees that I can experiment on. 
and we do now what we call target pruning so we're looking at how a branch joins a branch so we always we always talk about a branch joining a branch and the branch that it joins is a parent branch now that can either be the trunk or a, a branch or a lateral branch but branches always have an attachment point where they attach we have the branch bark ridge and a collar mm. and within that area it's what we call the reaction zone and the tree has an ability to compartmentalize mm. to to heal over create like a, a compartment that will stop any decay or any organisms so it's almost like, like putting up the drawbridge almost it, it is yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, it's like shutting off and saying right nothing can come past here we call it target pruning because if you look at a branch you can see concentric circles for the age so we, i would call that the cambium ridge it's almost like a lump of bumps is it around, it is yeah, yeah, the like a color yeah yeah, yeah, and, yeah and actually above the branch on top of the branch is a, a ridge of bark mm. it looks like a, a fu manchu mustache yeah 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 uh, we call that the branch bark ridge and it's imperative that you don't break into that ridge or the collar underneath right. so you always prune on the away the, from it away from it yeah yeah and then the tree can heal over you'll get a round cut nice donut and that's in a, a quick a quick explanation if you yeah. like so, so i suppose yeah. for the listeners who are a bit unsure if you, a good example if you looked at a cherry tree it always yep. has a really pronounced where the trunk meets the branch yes. you see that ridging won't that's you? right that's yeah. a good way to identify yep. there, that's yeah that's right and yeah. always prune back to that you know don't be pruning back to a stump don't yeah. leave a tail or yeah, a stump you get snags and all because that. that will eventually die back yeah. the tree can't compartmentalize behind that and then that goes into the main branch into the trunk and before you know it you've got decay right so prune back to lateral branches prune back to a parent branch prune back to the trunk don't leave stumps yeah. and then right. if you do that you then don't need tree paints so right. tree paints are a thing of the past yeah so you don't because we used to paint tar on them all we sorts did, of and, stuff, and you're, you're right because yeah. it was all so we were, were sealing in the disease weren't we we yeah. were sealing it in and you're creating a microclimate behind mm. the paint mm. for everything and, and hiding a multitude of sins let the air get to it and because you do you look like you deal with compaction is one of the things yeah. you've pioneered as well yeah. isn't it when, yeah. when trees obviously street trees because roots need oxygen they do how about that okay so um you're absolutely right tree roots uh need oxygen just as much as the top i compare a tree to a wine glass which you'll be used to Chris. yes yeah, yeah okay. so <laughs> so the goblet on top is is the crown yeah. the stem of the glass is the trunk and then that flat bit that, that stops the glass falling over yeah. is the root plate. And that's, in, in perspective and comparison, that's how thick the root plate is. So, for example, here at Kew, there are very few trees, hardly any, with roots deeper than a metre. It's about spread right. and, and friction. And the reason for that is because, A, there's no water deeper than that. It goes dry. There's no nutrient because the nutrient's in the top. And uh, and there's no oxygen. So the deeper you go, the more anaerobic the conditions. Right. And those tree roots need oxygen. And, it's, and also, I mean, they also forage, don't they, roots? They, do. they will they're, go off and look for, look for for nutrient yeah. that way as well. They're, they're, they're searching and they'll, they'll go the easiest route. So if the soil's light and crumbly, they'll get through that really quickly. If it's really compacted, then they'll really struggle so so if you were at home and you had a tree and you were a bit worried about that would you just spike around it would yeah, that be just spiking it with either a fork, with, a fork, with a garden fork yeah, yeah or or if you've got the uh, spiker from a for you know for do aerate in the lawn that's mm-hmm. good but the other the other good thing is mulching yeah, I was going to wonder whether mulch And I help. love mulch. Um, yeah. They call me compost kenneth. All us organic gardeners love a mulch as well. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. And all you've got to think about is where trees come from. 
And, you know, I could say, you know, to you, where do trees... I said to the students, where do trees come from? So rattle all the nurses off and go, no, 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 no. We're not buying one now. Where do they come from in the wild, in nature? They come from woodlands yeah. and forests. So people talk about fertilising trees. Well, I've seen trees 500 years old and they've never had a drop of fertiliser <laughs> yeah, in their life because yeah. God doesn't go around spreading fertiliser. <laughs> There's no osmocote in a... In a yeah, they are, in they a, are, they <laughs> are cannibals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They eat themselves and they eat other trees. So the cycle of life. It is. Yeah. And the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle. Mm. And so, you know, when they drop their leaves in a woodland, the, the, the worms, the mycorrhizal fungi break that down, the tree takes it down. They drop a branch, that breaks down, it rots with the, the mycorrhizal Nothing fungi. Nothing wasted. Nothing wasted. It's, it's all eaten. And, and so what we're doing here at Q, and again, another area that we pioneered with decompaction was mulching. And basically, you, you know, you could just, we, we blow leaves under canopies now rather than raking them. So I don't rake any leaves here at Q. Yeah. We let the worms and the badgers do all that. And then rather than just leaving branches everywhere, so it would look really bad. And, and as gardeners, we, we like... There has to be some aesthetics to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we bring all the wood in here, we shred it, we chip it, we mix it, we compost it, and then we bring it back out and we put it around the base of trees. And basically, we're mimicking a woodland. Yeah. Ecological matching again. <laughs> Psychologically, the trees are thinking, I'm in a woods. I'm in a woods. I'm in a woods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what brilliant. we're doing. And yeah. there's no fertilizer. It's just pure organic matter. Right. Well, there's tons of info in there. I'm going to wrap up just a little bit with a few personal things. Two yeah. things. Favourite tree, if that's possible, because yeah. it's a hard question. But also, where do you like visiting the most? Where, you know, okay. all these travels. Is there yeah. a spot that you really love? Okay, favourite tree varies. From, uh-huh. But probably one of my favourite trees is a tulip tree. Really? I, I, yeah. So you've got that beautiful leaf, the flower, yeah. and then that autumn colour. Yeah. And, and then the bark, silver bark, fissured. It's just a magnificent tree, and, yeah. and I call that a hard-working tree. So, you know, if you've got to justify having a tree in your garden, it, you know, you've got spring, you've got summer interest, you've got autumn interest. All those characteristics, all those, yeah. the shade it provides. Yeah. So I like hard-working trees, tulip go. trees. And there's only two species. The North American one's a good one, and I love the North American one, but the Chinese one's more elegant and... Uh, but I wouldn't be bothered. Either or. Either, either or. or, yeah. And what about place? Um... West Coast, North America. Right. Just um, for the sheer size of the tree, the sequoias. All the... It's just mind-blowing and humbling. And, you know, I'm walking through these forests, looking at these named trees, so the biggest yeah. Douglas fir in the world. And you don't want to, I don't want to leave. No, you know, it's just, yeah, it's overpowering so almost. Absolutely. As, as it, the expression goes, it's like going back through time to the beginning when vegetation writers in the trees were kings. Fantastic. What a saying. <laughs> I, I'm impressed, Chris. <laughs> oh, that is um, dark, I, darkness, isn't it? That yeah. Is, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. I'll finish off with just like you've got many an accolade, a deserved accolade, haven't you? But recently you got the big one, didn't you? You got the MBE. I so yeah. that must have been a big, big day. You and Mrs. K and the kids. And hey, the kids, that, yeah. Was that, the, was that a good day? To describe that day for us. Well, actually, it was a good year, Chris, because I got the VMH and the RHS yes, in yeah, the yeah. spring. And then in the Queen's Honours, New, New Year's Honours list, I got the MBE. And you know what? You you never expect it mm. so when it when it when you get that letter it, it's uh, quite an emotional thing and you just think well you know that that's the one you want to tell your mum about you know and um and we had a day at buckingham palace again just before lockdown yeah and uh yeah i, I uh it's just an amazing thing and you know that everything that you do is 
noted and, and worthwhile. Recognition. You know? Recognition. And I can yeah. see in your eyes how yeah. much it means to you. Oh, it's it a big day for you, mate. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, son, it's an absolute pleasure. I can speak to you all week, mate. No yeah. problem. You know, I hope the yeah. people who listen to the Garden Organic podcast will get a lot from that conversation. I really thank you very much, mate. Mr. Tree, definitely Mr. Tree. You'll always be that to me, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. If you loved that interview and want to hear more from Tony, then listen to the unpruned version of the podcast, which will appear shortly. He goes into great detail about native trees, their strengths and uses, and discusses the terrible pests and diseases that trees are faced with now. You need to subscribe to make sure you don't miss it. Just press the subscribe button now on your phone, laptop, or wherever you're listening to us, and then you'll catch every one of our podcasts. Okay, so now it's time to open our monthly post bag. Chris and I are joined by our friends at Garden Organic, Hannah and Anton. Hi, both of you. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hannah, what have you got in this month's post bag? Oh, we've got quite a nice mixed selection of questions today. So we're starting off with a composting one. Um, So we've been asked, um, someone has been clearing their brassica bed and they're not sure if they can put the yellow diseased looking leaves on the compost heap. Anton, is this something you can help with? Yeah, this is a great big can of worms, really. Um, I would say sort of yellow plants which are just dying off naturally. No problem with putting those in your compost heap. They're just going to break down. In terms of plant diseases, that really does start to become more complicated because things need plant material to survive on. And and once that material is broken down in the compost heap, then they are unlikely to survive. But some diseases will survive the composting process because your compost bin at home really doesn't get that hot. So it's not really a simple answer for everything. And I think really, if you don't know what you're doing, if you're not really that sure, then it probably is better to put it in your council waste bin where it'll be composted at a really high temperature and it really will kill off those diseases. But to go back to the brassica leaves, brassicas with a few black spots on will be fine to put in your compost. Those leaves will break down and and they won't survive till next year. Anton, is there a difference between plant diseases which are soil borne and those which are actually on the leaf? Yes, that's probably our main distinction we should be making. There are some plant diseases which can survive in the soil even though there isn't plants growing there and they form sort of resting spores and these are the most pernicious of diseases. So a few examples like um, club root of brassicas, that will kick around in the soil for about uh, 20 years or so. It also needs quite high temperatures to break it down so it will definitely survive in your compost. So yeah, soil-borne diseases, anything that's got soil-borne disease, definitely be sending it off to your council where it'll be composted at high temperatures. You don't want to be putting it in your domestic compost bin. I guess one of the problems for any of us is to being able to identify these diseases. And that's just a matter really of looking online and trying to match what you're looking at with a picture that's online. Would you agree? I'd agree with that. I mean, there are some obvious ones. Club root is really pretty easy to identify. You get a plant which has got big swelling that looks like a ginger root on it. But other things, I mean, even we sometimes struggle to know exactly what the problem is. You know, sometimes a nutrient deficiency can look quite similar to a disease. And without sort of looking really closely, you're going to, you, you might struggle to know what the problem is. 
Okay, well, let's see if we can help the listener by playing perhaps a quick fire round of what is and what isn't good to go on the compost heap. So let's think of some perhaps more obvious ones. Let's start off with potato blight. So potato blight is one of those diseases that most of the time it won't survive in the soil. If you've got blighted leaves, you can safely put those in your compost heap. The the leaves will break down and the disease will die off. If you've got blighted tubers, the disease can survive in the tuber and that might grow into an infected plant inside your compost bin, which will infect things next year. So sort of bigger structures are more likely to survive. Okay, so best to send them to the green waste. Let's move to tomato blight. Again, tomato blight is is pretty similar. Um, It's actually the same disease as potato blight. It needs living material to survive, so it won't survive in your compost bin. Sometimes people are worried about putting the seeds in there. Actually, the disease isn't transmitted on the seeds. The only danger is that it might grow into tomato plants inside your bin, which then become infected from somewhere else. So you just need to keep an eye on them. Okay, that's helpful. Courgettes. Now, mine, like a lot of people's, got powdery mildew by the end of the growing season. Yeah, I think most people see powdery mildew on their courgettes at the end of the growing season. Um, that's pretty unlikely to survive in the compost bin. OK, so it, but it's fine to put them on the compost heap. And I guess the big tip as well also is to to chop it up finely because it'll break down more quickly. Yes, the less likely there are sort of surviving bits of plant material in, the less likely there are to be sort of disease surviving in the compost. And finally, I think if there's anything that you are not sure about, and Anton has been quite honest, it is a bit of a minefield, don't risk it. Don't put it on your home compost Send it off to the Green Waste Recycling Centre. Sorry, that's not easy to say, where they will be able to deal with it at much higher temperatures. Hannah, do you think that helps with the the query? Yep, yep, that's really useful. Thank you. So the next question is quite relevant at the moment as I hear the rain pouring on the window. So someone's written in and said their soil is very heavy and waterlogged. What would we suggest they can do about it? Chris, is this something you can help with? Well, it uh, sounds like a heavy clay soil, which contains a lot of iron molecules, which tend to adhere. So in the, when it's really wet, it all sticks together. In fact, it sticks together so much, you can almost make a cricket ball out of it if you bind it together. Of course, the other problem as well is if it dries, it becomes like concrete. The long-term solution is obviously to have that compost bin working and making sure you're getting plenty of organic matter onto it. And gradually that'll break the clay down, let the air in, let the plant roots go in, get the air and the water moving through it. You might also have a pan. What that is is where the clay forms are like a solid layer, a little bit under the soil surface in the subsoil. So dig down and make sure you break that up. Ultimately, your long-term goal, get the composting going, get lots of organic matter on it and turn it into a plant-friendly area. There are other things as well. You can do our famous grain manures. We love to talk about our green manures because they're so useful. Put those in as well. The roots will get in through to the clay, let the soil through, let the air through, break down those those clay molecules and break up the soil and make sure you can grow stuff in it. Traditionally, I suppose... We would have also dug it over in the autumn. I would have gone in with a mat, maybe chunked it over and left the frost to it, let the frost get on it to break it up. But nowadays, that's probably, and certainly in the south of England, that's not such a good idea because we just don't get those kind of winters. Maybe the further north you go, that's still an idea. If you've just moved into a place and you're looking out the window and you think, I really want to do a garden and it's all stodgy and clay and puddled and looks terrible, there are some emergency measures you can take. 
Um, I would normally go and put it what I call a soak away. You tend to find on, on new properties, you might even have clinker and, and old bricks in the soil anyway. But dig a big one square metre hole right in the lowest point of the garden and then just fill that with clinker, with brick and anything like that. And that means the, soil, the water will gravitate towards that lowest point of the garden and soak away. Another thing you can do, which is really important, is actually put some uh, grit slits in. We're down about half a metre and backfill them with gravel, horticultural gravel, and that will, again, aid drainage. So there is some emergency measures you can do. Chris, I'm really glad you mentioned green manures because it's we've mentioned them previously, but in case you don't know what they are, these are plants which actually help your soil, either by releasing nutrients or by changing the structure of the soil. And so in this instance, I would say field beans are very good or alfalfa, which has a long taproot, which will break up the soil and as it grows. Perfect. Yep. That's really useful. Thank you. So our last question is quite an interesting one, and this has been sent in by a Garden Organic member. So this member has two orange trees planted 35 years ago by one of their sons from Pips. They transported them to the Scottish Highlands in a removal van. They've never fruited, but they're much loved and valued. Recently, they noticed some leaf damage that they're very concerned about. So the members sent in a photo which shows large portions of leaves missing and stripped and curled up leaves with lots of sticky silk webbing. Anton, can you help with this one? Yeah, this is almost certainly the work of the Tortrix moth. It actually looks really terrible, but it's it's reasonably easy to deal with. It rarely kills the plant and it is also very common in citrus trees, especially when you bring them into a sheltered space over the winter. The, the moth finds a nice place to reside over there. So the adult moth's quite pretty, really. It's a sort of light brown colour with these sort of wavy dark brown stripes on it. And, and then the caterpillars are light green. And best place to find them is in the rolled up pieces in the leaves where they sort of form a silky webbing there. And, and really, the easiest thing to do is just keep an eye out for them and, and removing them and crushing the leaves where, where the rolled up parts are. You just need to keep an eye on it. There aren't really any sprays which are going to be more effective than just removing them. If you do that, you will be able to keep on top of them. I would say it's more of a nuisance than something that's going to kill your plant. I, I certainly remember seeing plants in our glass houses at Garden Organic quite decimated by them, but they came back and pretty readily once we removed the pest. I love the triumph of optimism of growing oranges in the highlands. <laughs> I was just thinking it's like uh, it's the plant equivalent of two copies in Inverness, isn't it? You know, you don't find many there. Do you? <laughs> well, that's really useful. Thank you, everyone. And we'll see you again next month. Cheers. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, we've come to the end of this month's podcast. Thank you for listening. Next month, I get to meet Don Murray. You may know his work at the Newt, the spectacular new organic garden in Somerset. Don also worked at the Eden Project and Mount Stewart Gardens in Scotland, and he's just recently been appointed Director of Organic Horticulture here at Garden Organic. I can't wait to get chatting with him. Until then, take care, keep in good spirits, and enjoy whatever organic growing challenges November brings. Our thanks to Kevin McLeod for providing the music.